Welcome to The Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture. Hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand. Hello, and welcome to The Laws of Style, downloading to you from New York, New York. I'm your host, Douglas Hand, and today we are joined by menswear impresario, Michael Bastian. Michael, thank you for joining us today. Hey, Douglas, my pleasure. Awesome. Well, so let's start at the beginning. Um, sure. At least the beginning of your career in menswear. Um, yep. You started on the retail side. You were at, uh, at least started at ANS, which is Abraham and Strauss for those that don't remember or, or know. Um, and then you worked at several other brands and retailers, um, kind of culminating as the men's fashion director at Bergdorf Goodman. Yeah. When and how did you make the pivot to design? That really happened at Bergdorf Goodman. I always look at all of those other jobs as kind of a ramp up to the Bergdorf job because um, that just pulled together a lot of what I was interested in and where my skills were. And as the men's fashion director at Bergdorf, um, I was also in charge of Bergdorf's private label. And, you know, we would go to every show, every trade show, runway show. Um, we could pick the best of the best. There was no price resistance at Bergdorf Men's. It, it was just a wonderful training ground to, to kind of hone your taste level um, and edit because you literally were seeing the best of the best. And I was also in charge of designing private label. Um, so after you go through Milan and Paris and London and all the um, US brands, we use private label to fill in the gaps. And the gaps were always these very simple classic pieces that we were not able to find at the level of everything else that was in the store. So we would end up doing hand-knit cashmere Farrell sweaters and like the perfect chino and um, stuff like that. And that was the stuff that I was wearing every day uh, myself. Um, I was having a hard time replacing things that I had worn since maybe I was in college, like old, mm -hmm. ironically enough, Brooks Brothers stuff that maybe at that time Brooks Brothers had walked away from or some other American brands may have been doing a copy, but maybe there were too many logos or it was not made as nicely as I wanted or the yarn wasn't as good. So I, I found myself like going back to these very simple pieces, but doing them at a very high level. Um, and that's how it all kind of started. And after doing my job for five plus years, um, I was ready to take on a new challenge. And at the time, Brunello Cuccinelli was the one doing Bergdorf's private label sweaters, if you can believe that. Um, we had a very, very tight relationship with him, um, me personally and Bergdorf, and they still do, I'm sure. But, um, you know, we were the ones that kind of nudged him into expanding the line into a full lifestyle, like adding in um, the trousers, adding in the shirts, you know, because he started out as a as a sweater brand. Um, it's a very interesting story if you ever interview him. People do not know that. 
I mean, that is, I think, shocking to most people when you look at how broad that brand is now and how oh my how gosh, yeah, influential he is not just as a business owner but as uh, you know uh, a proponent of sustainable fashion in the three hundred and sixty sense, mm-hmm. labor and craftsmanship, mm-hmm. and also putting you know soul into the into the pieces you design, you know, having this intangible element, so. We, I was really close to to Brunello, and when I thought maybe you know this stuff that I'm designing private label for Bergdorf is selling really well, and I know I can't find it out there. Maybe I should just do this myself. So, at one pity Womo, I approached Brunello and said, "Would you ever be interested in maybe doing this project with me, um, separate from Bergdorf?" Uh, of just doing these kind of perfect classic things, but American things, you know, like if you could conceive of me being kind of the little American brother to what he was doing at the time, you know, Mm -hmm. could you be interested? And he's like, of course, of course. So it was really, it was a handshake and suddenly I'm in, I'm in business. Well, you know, it was to that. That's 2006, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. 2006. And you uh, you formed the company as an eponymous yep. brand. Um, yep. You spoke about gaps. What what gap did you feel you were filling as an American designer working with Italian manufacturers? Um, and then we'll get into the choice of name and you know how how that played out. Well, the gap I was filling was this luxury American American sportswear done at a luxury level. That that really was the gap. Um, I, I wasn't seeing that out there in the market. Um, and I'm talking really classic stuff. Like Tom Brown was out there at the time. Uh, you know, he, we brought him into Bergdorf. A uh, band of outsiders may have been out there, but I was looking for something a little broader, a little more understandable, you know, because I really do believe there are people out there who anonymous is not the right word, but don't want to be overly logo, you know, overly consumed by a brand. You know, they have strong personal style. They just want these perfect elements to kind of construct their own style with. Um, You know, I have a friend who gets all of his stuff custom from Hermes. Now that's going to sound insane. And that's my personal goal in my life to be able to get my (laughs) wardrobe custom made at Hermes. And you would not know any of this was Hermes if you saw him walking down the street. It's the perfect chino, a white button-down shirt, a navy cashmere sweater, but it's perfect. You know, no logos visible. Um, and that that was always that North Star that I was trying to work towards. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, things took many paths and I ended up doing runway and that kind of had different requirements, but the impetus for starting the brand was that. That hole in the market. Um, Yeah. Well, so naming the brand Michael Bastion, and I know many designers before and many designers after you uh, have have gone the route of of naming the brand after themselves. Was that a conscious choice or was it almost just knee jerk? Like, of course, I'm going to name it Michael Bastion. And, and did you did you think about it and speak with any legal or other sort of business side advisors about it? Uh, you know what? It was kind of um, 
spur of the moment. At the time when I was at Bergdorf, I had gotten, I was, I was known, I was known internationally. I would be at these shows with all the buyers. And if I had picked a different name, I don't know if it would have taken off as fast. Yeah. You know, I really wanted to leverage my experience, my history. And I walked into it knowing, oh, you know, this is risky. You know, everyone knows about Halston and all of that and other brands. But, um, you know, when, you, when you're a designer and you name it after yourself, yeah, it, I, I had a specific reason. I yeah, had a history yeah. that I wanted to convey. So well, and that built-in marketing heft, if you will, of yeah. just an instant recognition does make sense. Um, yeah. Any any regrets having done it? I mean, your brand is still well, still with us, but you know, you yes. had a lot of big jobs as well at the same time. Yeah. You know, hard to keep that many plates spinning. So any regrets? Yeah. No. Not really, you know, there've been ups and downs with the whole thing um, over the years, but I, I don't regret it. I don't regret it. I always say, you know, it's my name. It's also my father's name. It's, there's something emotionally connected for me to, to keep the brand, the name, you know, even if I've done licensing deals, I've had partners, I have a partner, and I'm never going to be one of those designers that kind of checks out. You know, I still want to be part of this. It's still my name. I still feel it when I see my name sewn into something. Um, so I will never check out. I will always try to have a hand in it as much as I can. Um, you know, and I've been lucky that the, the partners I've had have, have seen it that way as well. They value that I as involved as I can be. Flash to 2010, a yeah. Gantt collaboration that really was was quite long-term. Um, yeah, five years. Think, yeah, really in, in ways informed that brand um, and elevated it, I think, to a lot of consumers. Um, yeah. Other collaborations, you know, through your own brand with, um, you know, smaller brands. Uh, there was so much going on in the late aughts, you know, early teens in menswear, um, mm. kind of the hashtag menswear movement. I mean, what, yep. what do you feel um, came out of that decade? And it may be a decade that's parked between two decades, but, you know, yeah. that, that span of time um, that's been good for menswear. Yeah, it has. Well, you know, you, you, if you're in this business for long enough, you really can pick up on the cyclical nature of all of it. And menswear, the cycles are a little slower, um, but they hang around a little longer. And in the early 2000s, it's hard to remember this, but it was kind of the era of Dolce and uh, Gucci. And the, it was a brand, kind of brand centric and logo centric. and people weren't doing a lot of heritage stuff or classic stuff it, it was a there were logos all over the place let's put it that way and um when we were at Bergdorf we were realizing that we were having to reconfigure the designer floor it had been maybe 70 percent European designer and a 
dabble of American designer. Maybe at the time when I got there, there was John Varvatos, there was a little theory shop, maybe. Um, and that, that was it. There were the American menswear offering was so narrow um, that a luxury brand like Bergdorf couldn't, didn't have a spot for it. So there was a gigantic opportunity there. And I think a lot of us kind of filled that gap, you know, like I said, Tom Brown started the ball rolling. Um, Band of Outsiders, Simon Spur, I was in there, um, a bunch of us. It, plus all the other heritage brands kind of woke up, you know, this is when Filson and Patagonia and L.O.B., everyone kind of decided at once, you know, we have a heritage that we should be proud of. And, and it was always celebrated in Japan, weirdly, like Japan understands kind of American trad and history better than the Americans. But uh, the timing, the timing was just perfect for that moment. And you would see kind of things referencing it when you went to Pity Womo or any of the trade shows, you know, you'd see these denim brands. RL55 is a great one that would, you know, reference American denim. And um, it, it was just, it was out there. So uh, yeah, it, it was like the, the time, you know, like I, I, I was thinking about this the other day. Designers who are constantly shape-shifting and turning into something else to follow these trends, um, I, I, I always am so suspicious of that because I think things work best when you have your own personal style as a designer and you happen to capitalize on that at the right time. Um, and know when to maybe dial it back a little and then jump back. But like, I was never going to suddenly wake up and be a streetwear designer, mm -hmm. you know? that was the perfect time for me to maybe dial back, like focus more on my personal life. I got married. It was just, you know, you got to kind of know what you're good at when your time is and be true to yourself. You know, that I'm always suspicious when I see a designer who's onto the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, you know, um, it's better to kind of stand for something. Um, and the, the road's always going to come back around. It just, it's the way, menswear works so um well speaking of of brands that have stood the, the test of time um in mm -hmm. 2020 you became the creative director at the longest uh running if you will uh menswear brand in the united states brooks brothers um, yeah brooks brothers has stood for a lot of things for a lot of people you use the word trad preppy comes to mind classic um some might say basic, fundamental, um, mm -hmm. but what, um, you know, how did that process come about? You know, how did they reach out to you? And how has the, the past year been? Well, you know, I, like I said earlier, a lot of the impetus to start my own brand was to make these things I couldn't find myself, either for myself personally or Bergdorf Goodman. And a lot of that was Brooks Brothers stuff. You know, at the time, early 2000s, Brooks Brothers was going through its own transition. You know, it was privately owned forever. Then in the 90s, Marks and Spencer bought it, um, opened up a bunch of outlets, kind of changed the merchandising mix, pushed it down a little bit. 
Um, and then it was bought by Claudio Del Vecchio. And um, the brand took on, I would say, a slight Italian flavor. You know, the design offices were moved to Milan. The fits were changed a little bit. Um, and certain things were dropped and added that maybe if you were a super fan of the brand for a long time, you might notice. Maybe the typical average person didn't notice, but I certainly noticed when certain shirts that I wore my whole life suddenly were only available in a non-iron, let's say. Um, and that wasn't what I was interested in or wanted or, you know, really loved. So. To come to, to finally land at Burks Brothers is amazing because also at the time, remember, I had the collab with Gantt, Tom Brown did the collab with Burks Brothers, and we were really kind of competing that time. We both had like stores on Bleecker a block away from each other, um, doing all this kind of press. And I just thought, all right, you know, that's it. I'm not, they're not going to be ringing my doorbell here. Because I already, you know, did my thing with a with a competing brand. So the joke has been all it took was a bankruptcy and a pandemic, but finally I'm here. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, it, it really had to be a really kind of unpredictable string of events for me to be able to land here, to have the time and be able to focus the attention on something as huge as this, to be at this stage of my career to take a brand like this as seriously as it needs to be taken. Yeah. Um, to come from where I came from and always having loved the brand and having a very specific point of view, um, which luckily lines up with the new owners and the new CEO's point of view. Um, you know, it was a really long chain of events that had to happen in that order for me to be here. So it's again, like my whole career has been really this wonderful experiment in fate and good luck and you know i didn't go to fashion school i went to business school i kind of went through this series of jobs and ended up a designer and you know had great success with that menswear designer of the year 2011 you know really rode that wave runway shows these great collaborations gantt uniqlo you know that it's it, I step back and I can't believe my luck. Well, a lot of Brooks Brothers devotees would say they can't believe their luck that that you are now at the reins. I mean, at the time that you joined and and post the the bankruptcy restructuring, a mm -hmm. lot of people felt they didn't know what Brooks Brothers stood for anymore. You know, they mm -hmm. would go into Brooks Brothers and expect to get five pocket cords in Navy or, you know, mm -hmm. uh, a nice roll neck Oxford that, that, that had the role they expected or just a sack suit. And those things mm -hmm. weren't there or they were there in yeah. a different configuration. Yeah. How do you think that happened? Well, how, how the brand maybe drifted a little bit. Yeah, drifted or deviated or, or just, you know, there were at I, certain I times those gaps in, in the product offering. I I really can't explain it. I really can't explain it other than maybe the brand is to me the quintessential American brand and there is a quintessential American style. Um, 
and I, I say this as a guy who lived in Italy for a long time, you know, like you really see the difference, you know, um, in what real American style is versus Italian style. And it's not to say that they did anything bad or wrong. They're, they certainly had a very huge business for a long time. Um, it's just, a, I, I just feel like it wasn't tapping into what, to me, the brand always stood for, should always stand for. You know, there's so little you can rely on. I, you could always rely on going to Birth Brothers and getting those Oxford boxers that are a little on the baggy side, the OCBD that's kind of oversized. The, there were things that you never dreamed would go away never dreamed would go away because they were just so baked into your life and your parents' life, and your grandparents' life. And, um, you know, so for a certain group of people, the loss of those was really felt hard, you know, and to the rest of the world, maybe they didn't notice and, you know, the brand was still doing well. Uh, so, you know, the people who are super fans of the brand, um, I always wanted to like let them know I I am you. I too want this to go back to exactly what it is. They also happen to be very vocal. <laughs> and you know, things this is not going to happen overnight. This is going to take a minute because of a lot of factories went out of business. A lot of, you know, things happened in the last 20, 30 years. Um and also we have to be in the world, the modern world as well. But, um, you know, slowly, I, I say, I'm not reinventing the wheel here. I'm putting the spokes back in the wheel. This is an established wheel, believe me. I This brand will be here long after I check out. Um, and I just think what I need to do is kind of tap the brand back to its core strength, which is classic, traditional American. Um, our CEO, uh, Ken Ohashi, he really summed it up beautifully. He, he said, all right, to me, this is what we are going to focus on. The brand has three key, three key words to think about. Number one being tradition, oldest American brand um, in, in existence from 1818. Uh, with a deep bench of iconic pieces. Um, the second is innovation. What people don't realize about Birch Brothers, they think it, you know, it's just their grandfather's favorite brand or something. But the reality is Birch Brothers invented the modern ready-to-wear suit. Before Birch Brothers did that, it was all custom. Birch Brothers invented the non-iron shirt. Birch Brothers invented the button-down. It, it, it's insane. Brooks Brothers was the first one to bring um, Madras and really go with Searsucker. It, so many firsts happened at Brooks Brothers. And that element of innovation, people don't necessarily think of us for, but always needs to be there. It's baked into the brand. And we really want to celebrate that. And the third is my absolute favorite. And that is celebration. And what a beautiful thing. Brooks Brothers is there for you at the most important parts of your life, times in your life, your wedding, your bar mitzvah, your graduation, uh, all of those 
beautiful, beautiful moments that you need to dress up or buy your first tuxedo or, you know, it's like, it gives me chills. It's like, it's a, yeah, it's something yeah. that I really value and take seriously because it's true. And I never thought of it, but great responsibility. You know, great responsibility. Yeah. yeah, I do. And I take it very seriously. Um, getting these things to be as perfect as possible. And, you know, now with supply chain problems, getting them in the store, it's hard to even get the quantity of white shirts we know we can sell, which sounds ridiculous. Or certain, uh, like tuxedos, it's, it's, there's kinks in the supply chain, yeah. let's yeah. say. And we know it and we're fixing it. But um, it's funny, the other day I, on eBay, I found an old Burks Brothers ad from the 40s yeah right after the war ended and it was an ad basically saying look there's shortages we know it it's going to take a little longer to get you your stuff but stick with us we're, we're doing our best and it just shows you there's always been supply chain issues there's always been kinks in the hose but yeah. you know a brand this old you're 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 going to experience that but it's only like you know smooth selling ahead well, part of that process for you, you know, we talked about this when, when you started, was mm. I think for many of us, the enviable task of going into the archives for a deep dive. Mm. Uh, yeah. I would have loved to be your research assistant on that. But, um, you know, we talk about these iconic pieces, but we're talking an over 100 year span. So yeah. as you sought to fill those, those gaps, do you feel that there was a focus on, say, a certain decade? I mean, you and I are sort of children of the 70s, 80s. Yeah. I think, you know, we yep. both read the Preppy Handbook and, and, and maybe that yep. was a default for you. But there are obviously are pieces from the 50s and earlier that, uh, that yep. are also iconic. Did you sample from various decades or do you feel you're bringing back a certain sphere of, of the history? Well, I will always default to the 80s. Because that's, you know, I think we all default to that period in your life when you're just able to, you know, express your own style. Um, and to me, Burks Brothers, that was the 80s. But of course, I would think that to some people, it's the 60s, the 50s, the 40s. Um, and I, let me give the uh, Oxford Cloth button down. Let me use that as an example. So we called in a bunch of them from the archive from the 20s which fit like a nightshirt, which literally almost came down to your knees to, you know, the most recent ones, um, it were in the nineties before the takeover by Marks and Spencer, just to get, just to level set what, what's going on with this shirt. And there were some things that never changed like the six pleat on the cuff, the placket's always been a specific width, the yoke in the back is higher than most. If it has a pocket, it's centered onto the second button, which it feels a little low if you aren't used to it. Um, on the dress shirts, there's not another button on the placket. There were all these like little things, mm -hmm. along with the fabric being, the pink is a certain pink. The blue is a very particular blue. But then there were things that did change that we found out that, you know, there's this myth that Brooks Brothers shirts have no no fusing or lining in the collars and Collar, cuffs. Yeah. That's a complete and utter myth. And I've had like almost physical fights with people who, who swear 
And I have had to show them archive pieces where, you know, you loved your shirt, you wore your shirt, the collar wore out. You see that little bit of fusing that it looks like kind of a burlap interface thing, not burlap, but, you know, and if it didn't have anything in it, it would be the same fabric. <laughs> so, you know, people have it people have very specific ideas of where they want to drop the needle as the golden period. And I'm doing my best to kind of aggregate the best, the things that never change. And then the things that did change a little, like the length has, has gone up and down. Mm -hmm. uh, every, every shirt we had really had a different length from, like I said, night shirt up to, you know, almost like a little too short. And we, chose right now to drop the needle with a, a length that you can tuck in or you can you know leave untucked kind of poke the front end mm -hmm. it's still it's still long enough to to be neat and all that but um so but that's just the shirt then you can go into the navy blazer the camel hair top coat you know harris tweed the shoulder pads and the fit I, there's there's super fans who are really obsessive about every single one of those details and all i have to say to them is i'm one of you i'm with you i hear you um sometimes it's frustrating because you know they aren't kind of understanding the reality of sometimes production or where the factories are located and um you know, but we'll get well, there. certainly for we a lot of Brooks Brothers history, they were working with manufacturers located here in the US. All, yeah, of, all which of them is, are gone. Yeah, all of them are gone. And that is a very important part. If you're the most iconic American brand, of course, we need to have some US production. And we are working very hard at that right now to get that figured out. Um, and that's really all I can say at this moment. But we heard we heard you. And we agree with you. There should be American production at Brooks Brothers where we can. You know, sometimes we're going to have to be very clear with the customer that the price is going to be higher than making it in Asia, let's say, mm -hmm. or even like in Portugal because of the, the labor cost here. So, um, you know, there's a reality, but it's a cost that I think some a lot of people are willing to absorb for made in America. So that's coming. Let, let me let me ask a question that a lot of brands and some heritage brands, and it would seem most befitting a heritage brand um, are mm -hmm. gravitating towards, which is sort of an endless life cycle potentially for their items. You saw this, I think, mm -hmm. first probably and most prominently with Patagonia, where mm -hmm. you know they will take back your love gently loved or or harshly loved items mm -hmm. and give you a credit for another one and then they will either upcycle that fabric or they will you know they will they will put it on the secondary market is that right. something you see brooks brothers doing particularly considering you know such a long legacy of uh you know quality yes and we're we're approaching that in a couple ways um one we introduced last year a vintage shop online um where we put just vintage brooks brothers um because we were buying a lot of it i was buying a lot of it to just like i said level set what was it throughout the decade but also we were realizing um 
you know, there's a demand for that. There's customers who, if you are kind of really obsessive about a 1950s sack suit, of course you should be able to come to us for that, or we should be able to offer that custom to you, that pattern. So kind of getting back our own archive, uh, creating these kind of shop and shop environments, it's, it's a work in progress. You know, you need a kind of a critical mass of merchandise to launch. And we've been working with some vintage dealers, but um, that's what, that's one way. The other way is, and this, this just came up, we are working with a company that will take a shirt an old shirt of yours and like maybe make it into a, a baby dress, you know, like a way to literally repurpose the, the, um, the boyfriend dress shirt or the boyfriend jean sort of concept, but for, but for a little kid. Yeah. Right. Which, which yeah. I love, you know, cause yeah. I, I just think that's a really cool way, but we're, we're, we're definitely always thinking of that, the cyclical, you know, and also part of, Part of that is making things that are are going to last, yeah. you know, not disposable. So, well, so Brooks Brothers certainly um, classic pieces. Uh, some yep. might say certain basic pieces. You know, not overly um, fashiony. So how how does your guy get dressed and exhibit personal style? Well, I like to think there's. There's a place for Brooks Brothers in literally everyone's closet, whether it's your boxer short, the white button down, a dress shirt, a navy cashmere crew neck. There is a place for these perfect basics in literally every person's wardrobe. For some people, it's only Brooks Brothers, and that's amazing, and we want to make sure we take very good care of that customer. And then for some people, it might just be you know, the men's pajamas, a lot of women buy those. Um, or a boy's blazer, a lot of girls love that. Um, you know, and the, here's another interesting thing that people really don't give Brooks Brothers the credit they deserve for. Um, our women's department really spun out of our men's department and the brand has always kind of treated, has always considered itself almost gender neutral in a way. You know, we always had Fran Leibowitz for a while only wore Brooks Brothers um, Bengal shirts or button downs. And that that's a very, um, that's something that's very in the air right now. This idea of do clothes have a gender and Brooks Brothers has always kind of been at, at the edge of that, just never acknowledged it. Um, so I went a little off topic there. No, that's good. You know, I think the next the next question is really, what do you think of um, gender fluid design? There are a lot of brands that are, are yeah. really taking no position. They tend to not be in in tailored clothing so much because of the 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 just the the body differences. But yeah, yeah, men between themselves have body differences as well. So, um, you know, what do you think yeah. of that as, as a future, and what do you think of some of those brands? I think I want to be a little more explicit that we think this way and are making sure that our products are available. And if it is custom, or if it is just making sure that all of our menswear goes down to extra small and all of our women's things that might be bought could go up to XXL, 
you know, like, why should anyone care whether a kilt is in the men's department or the women's department? You know, sweaters, a sweater is a sweater, you know, I, well, it, especially really... when you're controlling your retail door, you know, I get it for yeah. a brand that has to sell it wholesale. So they're like, mm -hmm. shit, you know, mm. uh, there's no real gender fluid. You have buyer. a women's buyer or a men's exactly. buyer. Exactly. Right. So I'm, I'm betwixt and between, and I may just not get an order because there's just nobody to place it, even though they want me in there. Uh, but, but right. with Brooks Brothers, obviously you control your retail door so you can, you can present them however you, however you wish. Yeah, you know, when I first started, I was, I was afraid that some of the, some of the sales staff, some of the team who had been with Brooks Brothers for ages, you know, suit selling experts, how would they treat women who came in and maybe were looking at the menswear? Would there be any problem? And the reality is they're so used to it that it's a great experience. They welcome it. They, you know, it's, and, and a lot of, a lot of, um people who maybe don't identify male or female like love brooks brothers and we're here for them well so. in the suit you know to the suit which yeah there have been the 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 prognostications of the death of the suit really since since you and i were born i mean it's not a new yeah. thing to be honest no but obviously with the shift in work norms today not just a casual week but often mm -hmm. a week in which you never actually go into a, a specific place of work and you perhaps yeah. are just on Zoom calls appearing, you know, uh, waist up. Yeah. How has work from home uh, impacted the way in which uh, people dress? And is Brooks Brothers addressing it or just, you know, continuing to, to offer what you offer and letting people select based on that new norm? No, we, we're really conscious of what's happening with how people go to work and honestly tailored clothing dress shirts ties that's always going to be the cornerstone of the business it, look at how you're dressed that is never going to go away maybe fewer and fewer guys are going to wear a suit or maybe you're only going to wear a suit three out of five work days but it's never going to go away and we will always be there for that client so if if the tailored pie is shrinking, we want a bigger chunk of that pie. And I think we are, like I said, the go-to for a lot of guys who want that classic American tailored look. So we have, tailored clothing has been super strong. Dress shirts, ties, great. Ever since people have to go back to work, you know, or their body changed during the pandemic and they got bigger or smaller, uh, that, that, Part of the business has been great simultaneously i was brought on with a very specific mission to also strengthen the sportswear um because brooks brothers really there was always sportswear if you go through all the old catalogs there's always you know swim and shorts and this madra shirts and all that stuff but it was never it was always kind of an add-on to the tailored clothing it wasn't ever a real focus and i have this big sportswear background so we really concentrated on sportswear and got that, you know, up to almost half the business in one season. So we're going to take care of you however you're going to go to work. And going to work is always going to be a component of the brand. You know, let's just put that out there. Whether you are going in a chino and a button down or a t-shirt and a jean, 
we've got you covered. Um, you know, we don't go all the way down to street or athletic. That's just not part of the brand. We, you got to kind of play to your strengths and who you've been, who you always have been, both myself personally and the brand. Yeah. Um, you can't be everything to everybody. So, you know, that's our, that's our take on tailor clothing and where the world's going. You know, it's a reality and we all have to, you, you either accept it or you don't, but we can adapt. And Burke's other adapting has also been baked into the brand. This whole, I don't have a month to get a custom-made suit. I'll go to Burke's Brothers and buy the ready-made suit. What do you think is the most relevant laws of style, uh, law of style for your, you know, for your customers? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's always, you know, here's the thing. I've always found this. If you give me a rule, I will obsess till I can find a way around it. You know, I just, it's like, it just becomes some weird subliminal challenge. So like the denim with denim, I'll like stay up all night and figure out, you know, the right way to do that. Or so now you've just given me the black leather with denim, which yeah, obviously feels like a big old cliche, but now I'm going to try to figure out how to do that. But um, yeah, I, you know, you're, well, you I will say I culminate. Michael, I do culminate as really, you know, the ultimate rule is kind of these rules should be broken. You know, you're not really yeah. giving yeah. any personal style unless in fact you're breaking some rules. Right, and I, that's my big cornerstone, personal style. And that's really actually important to the brand because when you're making these things that are very straight up, simple, things that you should have for your whole life, um, how you put them together is what breathes life into the brand. Yeah. So personal style is a gigantic component of everything I've ever done. It's kind of that, <clears throat> it's kind of that a little undone, pardon me. <clears throat> Getting verklempt. Right? <laughs> no, it has to always feel a little unstudied, a little undone. That is the American gift, you know, whereas the Italian gift is perfection. Mm. Yeah. You know, yeah. like nails, hair, everything. But that also leaves a lot of latitude for having a lot of fun with color, with pattern, <clears throat> with adding in vintage things, a scarf your grandmother knit for you, you know, like exactly. personal yeah. style, Pers American personalizing personal style. it is is always right. You know, that's one of uh, I actually feel strongly like I, I don't wear a lot of jewelry, but anything yeah. a child has made for me is completely mm. fair game. And I can wear it on my wrist, right. you know, with, with an expensive watch and it's going to be right because my child made it like it's completely right. Different. I agree. I agree. I, it's, I, what I, what I don't like is no style, you know, like not caring. And I understand there's a lot of people who just get dressed to cover their body, <laughs> go about their day. But, um, you know, it's one of those pleasures in life. It's like some people are obsessive about wine. Some people are obsessed about cars. All of these things can kind of enrich your life, elevate your day. And, you know, if you're not taking advantage of that, I feel sorry for you. Um, not to say you should be a slave to fashion, but like there's a lot. Of fun to be had with that. Well, let me more rapid fire with you as we come to the close sure. of the hour. Um, 
style inspirations for you, whether whether living or dead, um, and whether men or women? Um, I really, I go back to this one a lot, but JFK Jr. was, people forget how good his style was and how kind of perfectly American it was. He, yeah. if he had lived, let's say, I would, I wish we could have seen how his style would evolve because it, it really, it really was great in my opinion. And then there's one, that, you know, sometimes there's like ones that feel like a cliche. Like I love how Arthur Miller dressed and I, David Hockney, I, I'll see a new picture of David Hockney and just be blown away by how he put things together and his yeah. color sense. Um, but recently, you know, you, we've, we're in this weird celebrity age and people have stylists and you don't really know, is it their style or their right. stylist style or... So, you know, I, I get more inspired by random people on the street, honestly, than a celebrity. Well, it brings up another rapid fire question, which is um, your top three cities for men's style. Uh, well, Tokyo is always going to be number one. Um, I really like Boston, and maybe it's because I went to school there and it just kind of is the birthplace of this, you know, look that, that I so appreciate. Um, and then it's going to sound weird, but San Francisco. Okay. You don't think of San Francisco is like a preppy town, um, but it's, it's there. It's there. I just really, I don't know. I think guys have a lot of style in San Francisco. Yeah, well, as that's a my, those are, myself, those I, are my I, I will take it, even though, you know, I was born down in Los Angeles where nobody really gives style points to. Los, Los Angeles, you know, might have just as much style, but you're in your car. You don't see people you don't see walking, it. you know, not, I don't well, know. And consequently, in men in particular really do not dress up in mm. Los Angeles. You see somebody in a suit and you think they're maybe serving papers on somebody or, you know, right? just... You know, it just doesn't look normal, as well as outerwear. I mean, people just don't really buy coats, even though it gets cold yeah. in Los Angeles, yeah. going from a car environment to an indoor environment, typically. And, you know, if you have an overcoat, you know, you're not wearing it because that's transitional, right? You wear the overcoat mm. over tailored clothing to to mm -hmm. to go into the room and then, you know, look your best in tailored mm. clothing. So mm -hmm. I think most men in those cities will wear active wear as outerwear and you know yeah. i remember coming to school in the northeast and all i had were sort of ski clothes for uh you know for cold weather because in mm. uh, southern california it's just not not a thing um no. well michael thank you so much for joining us we we've, we've come to the end of our time but um really appreciate it and as we as we round into summer really looking forward to see what uh, comes online at brooks brothers well, thank you, Douglas. It's always a pleasure talking to you and anytime. All right. Bye now, everybody. All right. Bye. You've been listening to The Laws of Style with Douglas Hand. For more information, go to our website at www.hballp.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at, at Hand of the Law. Thank you for tuning in. And stay stylish.